So we're, we're, we're continuing, we're doing a, a Christology, right? We're looking at who is Jesus. Um, and my portion of that every other Sunday is to walk us through the book of Hebrews and to see what, is, what does that book tell us about uh, sort of this, this big picture, sort of, we're calling it a Christology from above, uh, sort of this, this, what is the declared Jesus? What does the Scriptures tell us broadly about, about the person and work of Christ? Um, and of course, in the other weeks, Jorge is doing the, a gospel account and looking at his actual, his life, uh, his ministry. We're calling that a Christology from above. How does, how does what Jesus did fulfill what is proclaimed about who he is, right? Uh, so our Christology from above so far as we've been in the book of Hebrews has included Jesus as the Son of God. That's where we started. That's where the author of Hebrews begins in chapter 1. He is the Son of of God. He is superior to the angels. He's superior to all things because He is the imprint of, of the nature of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, right? We looked at all those, those big, beautiful proclamations about Jesus' deity. And then we, and then, and then the writer of Hebrews, uh, talked to us about Jesus being the greater prophet and compared him to Moses and saying that, that Jesus brings to us the very words of God because He is the Word of God. He reveals God fully to us. He's the better prophet. We looked at Him being the, bre- the, the, the greater priest as well uh, a couple weeks ago. We talked about the high priesthood uh, in the Old Testament and, and in Israel and, and sort of how that, that ministry uh, was, was all done in what, what the, the writer calls a, a shadow. It's sort of a copy of of the things that happen in heaven, that, that God had given this temporary ministry for them to be pointed to the greater reality of, of heaven and of the ministry of Jesus as the great high priest who intercedes for us before the actual throne of God. Because again, he's the son and not just a temporal priest. So we looked at Jesus as the prophet as the priest, there's another significant Old Testament office. You know what it is? Prophet, priest, and king. Good. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus as the greater king. And it's an interesting look because as we, as we look at Hebrews, we see a lot of very specific language about Jesus being the, the better prophet. We see a lot of very specific language about him being the better priest. The language about him being uh, the, the, the greater king is a little harder to discern, especially uh, for for us that who have you know we're mostly all Gentiles, right? We're, we don't have Jewish backgrounds. We may not be as familiar with some of the Old Testament systems. And and interestingly, as as the writer is pointing to the kingly office of Jesus in, in connection to his priesthood, um, he he's I think trying to help even his Jewish audience understand that you probably didn't really grasp this either. Because it's a little bit obscure. It's an interesting pathway to, to the, the kingship of Christ through Hebrews here that, that runs through an obscure Old Testament character named Melchizedek. You've, you've probably heard his name come up a little bit as we've been reading throughout Hebrews so far. Look over at chapter 5, verse 6. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 20 of chapter 6, 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've read those verses uh, over the last few weeks as we've looked at some of these, uh, these texts, but we haven't really explained what that means. Who, who is Melchizedek? Who is this person? What a weird name, right? The first time I, I heard Melchizedek, I remember thinking specifically that it reminded me, his name reminded me, this, this, uh, this might date me, and I don't know if any of you remember this, but the old like Batman cartoons, and there was this, this villain called Mexel Plizzlewick or something like that. Do you remember that little, he was like a little imp guy, and, and he had this name with no, had no vowels in it, and, 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 and it was always confusing, his name, Mexel Plizzlewick. That's what I, I hear Melchizedek, and it just gets me all jumbled up. What a, what a name. What does Melchizedek have to do with our Christology? And that's the, that's the question that the writer of Hebrews is going to explain to us this morning. Now, just so you understand, we're going to look at this in detail, but there are only three mentions of Melchizedek in the Bible. Uh, one of them is in Genesis chapter 14, which is where we, we see him for the first time. Another one is in Psalm 110. And then the third mention are the mentions that are given here in the book of Hebrews. Outside of those three points, Melchizedek doesn't appear anywhere. So, so again, as you're, as you're, if you're the original recipients of this letter, you know, all you know is maybe you remember this name popping up in Genesis once and you remember it popping up in the Psalms once. And so what the writer of the Hebrews is going to do is pull those two together with his explanation here in Hebrews and, and try to, to have us have a, a serious understanding of, of, what the significance of this figure is in our quest to understand who is Jesus. Okay? So what I want to do this morning is we're going to have three points and we're going to look at those three different sections of the Bible. We're going to, we're going to go back to the first two Old Testament mentions of Melchizedek for ourselves before we come back to Hebrews. So I told you, be ready to flip around. What I want you to do is flip to Genesis chapter 14. It's the first book in the Bible. So it should be very much at the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 14. If you're using the Bible in the pew, it should be page 10. And this is our first point this morning. If you like to take notes, the first point is this. Abraham honors Melchizedek. Okay? Abraham honors Melchizedek. Now let me set the scene here for you before we read the, the text here in Genesis chapter 14 because you, you got to get the setting a little bit here. So, so, so just prior to Genesis chapter 14, in Genesis chapter 12, we see the call of Abraham. God calls this man Abram. He's called Abram at the time. He'll later be, be known as Abraham. And God gives him the covenant promise that would serve as the seminal act of Israel's creation and existence. This is the very beginning of, of the people of God, the people of Israel here in the Old Testament. And, and here's what God says to him there in chapter 12. He says, Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be, will be blessed. So this is the, the, the significant covenant that God makes with Abraham. Again, it begins the existence 
of, of, of God's people Israel. This is the promise that, that this nation is going to come about. And significantly, that promise that in this people, all of the nations, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. There's a messianic promise here, right? God's saying, I'm going to bless the whole world through this people. And then we get to chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we're told that Abram has a nephew named Lot. And both of them were, were very wealthy. They had lots of possessions. And the gist of, of chapter 13 is that they, they've got so much stuff that they can't occupy the same space, the same land. And so they have this, this amicable separation and they settle in different places. Okay, that's chapter 13. And then we get to chapter 14 and we, we get this sort of uh, uh, geopolitical picture of what the world was like at the time. And we see that there's basically a bunch of city-states in the area where Abram is, is living, in, in, the, in, in Palestine, in the Middle East, in that whole region. There's all these different little city-states, each with its own king. Okay, So if you think about the, the, uh, what a king was like in those days, it was kind of more like a mayor. right? Each city had, was its own sovereign entity, and there was a head, the king of each city. But they were just cities. They weren't like these vast nations. Think of it more like kind of like mayors, but they've got significant power and they've, they've all got their own little armies. And these kings make alliances with other kings and then they, they fight against some of the other alliances and, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the, the geopolitical reality of the day. And, and we get to chapter 14 and we see one of these, one of these little skirmishes breaks out. You've got one of these, these battles and in the battle you've got five kings in one alliance and four kings in another and they have this this fight. And the gist of the fight is that these five kings include and are sort of surrounded by the, one of the, the five whose, whose name is Keterleomer. And, and they've been sort of the dominant group and they've been oppressing some of the other city states. Uh, and so the four kings who are rising up against them are some of these oppressed groups who are finally sick of it and they're ready, they're ready to rebel. Okay. And of note, Two of those four are Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are names that we'll hear later on, but just that they're in that group. So there's this, there's this skirmish that happens. And the outcome of the war is that the four rebel kings, they lose. The five, you know, they, they, they pretty handily defeat them. And when you win, you get the spoils of war. So you get to go in and they, they kind of pillage the, the cities and they carry off people as captives and all that stuff. All that's important for one simple reason. Lot, Abram's nephew, is in that area of the losers, and so he, he gets caught up in it, and he gets carried off and taken captive. And so Abram finds out about it. Hey, my nephew's been enslaved. He's been, he's been carted off. And he organizes a fighting force of his own household, 318 trained men, we're told, and they, they kind of launch this rescue mission to go get Lot. And they win. They go to the Keterleomer and those armies and they, they end up beating them and, and they rescue Lot and all of the other captives and all the possessions. And we pick up in verse 17. You following so far? That was a good little summary. All right. Verse 17 of chapter 14. So after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. Now, what I want you to do is skip down to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Marmite take their share. So basically, you just get this scene where the, the king of Sodom meets Abram. Hey man, thanks for winning. You know, why don't you keep some stuff? And Abram says, no, I don't want anything but my people. Like, I don't want to say you made me rich. And, and, and that's it. And that whole account makes a lot of sense when you kind of skip from verse 17 to verse 21. The flow is just very natural. Which means that verses 18 to 20, sitting in the middle of that, just feel like this weird intrusion. It's this dis- disruption of the, of the narrative. And so you go, what, what is going on here? Read it and, and see just how strange this out-of-place intrusion sounds. So I'll start in 17 again. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram by the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That weird like scene in the middle of, of, of the king of Sodom coming out and having this conversation. Melchizedek shows up, blesses him, brings him bread and wine, and Abram gives this man a tithe of 10% of all that all the spoils. And then it's like the scene's over and we're back to the conversation with the king of Sodom. And that is the only mention of Melchizedek in the Pentateuch. That's it. So let me give you a couple of, men, of observations that, that we can pick up here. Just, just You can't grab a whole lot, but here's the observations. The first one is that this guy Melchizedek shows up, and unlike any other significant person in Genesis, and if you read through Genesis, you'll catch this, anybody who's got any significance whatsoever, they're introduced with a genealogy. They're the son of this person, who's the son of this person, the son of this person, and they begot this person, they begot, and then you get their, their introduction. That's not here for Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means something. It means king of righteousness. Zedek means righteousness, right? So, so Melchizedek is, is, is the king of, or, or um, I mean, that's about as literal as you can get, king of righteousness. And then we're told that he's also the king of Salem. So his name means king of righteousness, but his title, his position is king of Salem. Now, Salem is another interesting word. In, in the Hebrew, it's, it's, there's, no, there's no vowel sounds there. So it's like S-L-M, Salam, which is Shalom. Shalom means peace. He is the king of righteousness, who is the king of peace. And interestingly, Salem probably is Jerusalem. Most scholars think that he, he came from Jerusalem. That was, that was his city-state. So before Jerusalem is Jerusalem, you've got the king of Salem from that, er, from that place who is the king of righteousness. 
And he is also, we're told, a priest of God Most High, which, again, kind of a, a very interesting, strange uh, mention because to this point, Abram is the only person we know of who has a relationship with the God Most High. So after the flood, you know, it seems that there, there are others who have continued to know and to follow the Lord. And this, this king and his city are perhaps some of them. He is a priest of the God Most High. And he, he blesses Abraham again. He gets a tithe from Abraham. And that's significant. Abraham paying a tithe to this man, is a, that's a statement of honor. But we're not really told why. Except that he performs this priestly function. And again, that's it. No other mention of him for a thousand years. None. Until Psalm 110. This is the second point. The first point was Abraham honors Melchizedek. The second point is David ponders Melchizedek. Okay? David ponders Melchizedek. Flip over to Psalm 110. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 509. Let's read it together. Well, sorry, I'll read it. You don't have to read it out loud with me. Just follow along. Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay, just some observations here again. The first observation is that this is a psalm that was written by David. That is not an add-on by the ESV uh, editors. You know, like, like sometimes there's little titles over some of these, these psalms. Um, Sit at my right hand is what it says over mine. But that, that's an add-on. The, the, the first line, a psalm of David, is not. That, that's original writing. That's David's writing. So he's identifying himself here. So this is the original, the writing of, of David. And it's not written like a prophetic vision. Okay? There, there's, a, there's like a prophetic sense to this, right? There's this looking forward to this, this kingly figure who's going to sit at the right hand of God and, and enemies will be made his footstool. It's very prophetic, but it's not... It's not given like a prophetic vision. It doesn't say the Lord says this. It doesn't say that the Lord said to David, thus says the Lord, write this down, right? Uh, sometimes Old Testament prophets say things that they're, you, it's a very clear direct revelation from God that they're supposed to communicate and they don't even know what it means. Like Daniel sometimes, like he, thus says the Lord and then he'll go, God, what does that mean? Um, this isn't like that. This is, this is David, uh, he's writing, these are like his own words. They're inspired, certainly, but it's not like a prophetic utterance 
It's David's thoughts in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. And did you notice that he mentions Melchizedek in verse 4? Right? So again, noteworthy, this is the only other mention of Melchizedek we'll ever see in the Old Testament. And for David, his only link to Melchizedek is this one obscure passage in Genesis 14. What was he doing? Well, he, he starts off by in verse 1 saying, the Lord says to my Lord, which is very interesting language. He's acknowledging that he's talking about the, the Lord God speaking to the Lord, another, another person that David as king is reference, referring to as his Lord. So David, David's the king, like on, on an earthly level, like there's nobody greater than David. But he's talking about somebody who is greater than him. And he's calling him Lord, but, but it's, it's this, this recognition that somehow in the Godhead, there's a conversation happening. And he says, this one is, is, is a king. He's greater than me because he's, he, there's, there's language here that's all about kingship. And so it, what, we're, what we're sensing here is that David is, is certainly looking forward to a, this is a messianic psalm. He's, he's, he's thinking about this, this met, the Messiah who's been promised that will come in through the line of David but will be greater. And, and it's clear that he's thinking of this one. And every, every bit of the language in, in this whole psalm, except for verse 4, where he says priest in the order of Melchizedek, all of it's king language. And one other little interesting thing is he talks about this king, this messianic one, drinking from a brook. So there's also human language attached to him. So he says, this is, this is a king that I'm, that I'm, that I'm, I'm considering and I'm pondering. But then in verse four, you get this, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So follow me on this. What, what was David doing and what was he thinking? I had the, the, the great privilege of taking a class with D.A. Carson at Trinity, when he, he walked us through this psalm, and I love the way that he explained this, because he says this. He says, I want you to imagine David as the king doing his, his daily devotions. Because that's what the kings were supposed to do. They, they, when they became king, they had to write out their own copy of the Scriptures, and they were supposed to meditate on those daily. So if you've got David, he's, he's written down, so he, he has a good, uh, uh, thoughtful, uh, understanding of, of the Word of God, and he's pondering it daily. He's, he's having this daily devotion. And, and, and Carson says, consider that, that th this particular day, he gets to Genesis 14, and he reads this weird, out-of-place intrusion of this Melchizedek figure, and he's going, what, what, what does that mean? And he, and he knows something, because as the king, under the law of Moses, he knows that a king can't be a priest. And a priest can't be a king. That's forbidden in the law. And yet David is reading the, the, the Scriptures here and he's going, before that all came about, there was a king who was a priest. And this was God's king and God's priest. In other words, that wasn't wrong. It was okay. 
It was right. And, and, and so as he's pondering this messianic vision of this, this one that will come, he's, he's going, you know what? This one who will come, this, what will make him the greater king is that, is that one day, like before the law came, there'll be a king who's also a priest. And it can't be, it can't be me. It can't be anybody who follows after me unless it's the messianic king. And he's sort of putting this all together. And so, again, his conclusion is the one who comes, this messianic king to follow, will, will, who, who'll need to be a king. He'll need to judge the nations and he'll need to sit at the right hand of the Father. He's the only one who can do this. He'll be the king of righteousness. He'll be the king of peace. But he'll also be a priest king like this one that Abraham paid honor to in Genesis. Okay? And then no other mention of Melchizedek for another thousand years. That's it. Now what's interesting is we get to the New Testament and when the New Testament is written, Psalm 110 becomes the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Did you know that? Jesus talks about it. He refers back to it. I mean, it's a messianic psalm. And then the writer of Hebrews picks it up. And he talks about the significance of Melchizedek. So we looked at, we looked at uh, Abraham honors Melchizedek. We looked at David ponders Melchizedek. The, the third is the, the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Go back to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verse 1. I'm just going to read through the first 25 verses of Hebrews 7. And I'll try to give a little bit of comment along the way, but it's once now that we've got the foundation for this Melchizedek figure, this is going to make some more sense to you. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Right, so you see what the writer of Hebrews is going all right, yeah, this is starting to, this is making some interesting sense. This whole Genesis 14 thing, he's, he's explaining all the observations that we've already made, and he's beginning to draw a connection. This, this Melchizedek is like the Son of God. No beginning, no end, no genealogy. Of, uh, in other words, there's, a, there's sort of this, he doesn't have an earthly father and mother like everybody else. He's like the Son of God in that way. And uh, this, this priesthood forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, the, the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Through these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, this Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. 
It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, so the gist of that is like the, Le- the Levitical priesthood, they received the tithes from us. But there, there are brothers and our sisters. Abraham, the father of, of the Levitical priesthood, the father of all of us, paid tithes to somebody else. And in a, in a weird way, because like all of the ancestors of Abraham were still in his loins, they kind of paid tithe, those tithes too, even the priests. Verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? You see what he's doing now? He's going, okay, now David was thinking about this and David was going, now we've got this law and we've got this priesthood and, and, and the priests can't be kings, but I'm, I'm thinking of this day that the Messiah is going to come and he'll be a king and a priest. It's going to be better. That's superior. And the author here is going, why would there need to be a superior one if, if what was given in the law was sufficient? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So he's saying if, 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 a, if a new kind of priesthood, a better priesthood comes along, that nullifies the law. Right? And again, because of the law, the priests all had to be from the line of Aaron, the, the, the Levites. But this priest forever wasn't, and, and Jesus who came wasn't. And no other priest has come from a line outside of the Levitical line. Jesus comes from the line of Judah, which is whose line? David. He's, he's got the kingly line. And nobody has ever had the priestly line as well. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement considering bodily descent. In other words, not because he was a descendant of Aaron, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Every other priest that ever lived died. Right. So if, 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 you're, if you are relying on that priest to give you access to God, to, to wash your sins, to do all the ministries of the priesthood, then they die, what do you need? Oh, i got to get another priest. And that kept happening, right? Until Jesus comes along and Jesus lives forever. 
This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So, though we've been examining the person of Melchizedek, this chapter is really not about him. It's about Jesus. It's, it's, it's saying, look, this Melchizedek guy, it's interesting stuff to look at, but it, it points somewhere. He points somewhere. This is about Jesus. And here's the point. We've examined Jesus as the son. We've examined him as the prophet. We've examined him as the priest. And now, the king. The king priest, right? But certainly, the king. Why is it so important that Jesus fulfills all three of those offices. Why is it so important that he fulfills all three? Nobody else did. The answer is because we need all three. We need a king. We need a prophet. And we need a priest. And we've had shadows, individuals, all throughout history, but we've never had one prophet, priest, and king. We needed him. We needed him. Why? I mean, you're 21st century Chicagoans. You're not 1st century Jews, right? You're going, why? Why do we need this? I get that the, the Old Testament law establishes that for Israel, but, but a prophet for me? 21st century American? A priest for me? A, a king? Well, here's the thing. Whether you realize it or not, all of us, all of us and everyone is constantly, we're constantly looking to those offices to provide us with our safety and our security and our well-being. You are daily looking at prophet, priest, and king functions in your life and in society to provide you with your safety, security, and your well-being. You're thinking, I do? You do. Who are the modern-day kings? Who are the modern day kings? You don't have a king. You know what you do have? You have political leaders. And you have a political system. And in the, in the same way that the king was tasked with the protection and the provision of the people, we look to our political leaders and our political systems for that same kind of function, don't we? We do. And many of us are, are looking to that particular function and saying, save us. Make us secure. And we're pretty darn disappointed when it's not happening, right? Who are the modern day prophets? Well, if you're old enough or cool enough to remember the lyrics of Simon and Garfunkel, the prophets are writing on the subway walls and tenement halls, right? What does that mean? Well, that's actually a pretty pretty insightful little lyric. In other words, what, what Simon and Garfunkel are saying is the prophets are, are all those little voices, all those little opinions that are vying for our attention and trying to tell us what's true. It's the talking heads on the TV. It's the, it's the, it's the tweets and the social media posts that we're constantly being bombarded with. Everybody's trying to to, to speak truth into our lives, to help us to discern what's real, what's fake, right? 
Hear this. Listen to this. Align yourself with this. This will provide you with the safety and the security and the deliverance that you're looking for. Just hear this. Prophets are everywhere. Opinions are everywhere telling us what to believe. And many of us are looking to those things and clinging to those things regularly for my security, my safety, my sanity, my, my deliverance. And the modern priests? Well, I mean, there are priests in society. But those of us who don't have religious uh, practice that includes the priesthood, and those who are no, of no religious practice at all, perhaps what we run to are the psychiatrists and the psychologists and the doctors who write down the prescriptions to help us to feel okay about ourselves. To, to sort of mediate between us and our fears and our anxieties and that underlying general sense that, that, that we all have that like, I'm not really okay. And many times we look to them and we say, you're the, you're the hope, you're the answer, save me. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those three functions in society. There's not. All right? well, here's what I am saying. Those offices, first of all, they exist today and they function for us today like they did for the Old Testament Israelites. It just looks different. And second of all, for us and for ancient Israel, a significant problem remains. None of those things can save us. None of them can save us. And the reason they can't is because the, the, the kings, they're not prophets or priests. And, and, and the prophets aren't kings or priests, and the priests aren't prophets or kings, right? Like no, no one, we can't look any one place and find all that we need to satisfy. Politics in and of itself can't save. Talking heads can't save. In fact, they probably contribute as much to our problems as they do to help solve them. That's, that's the basis for our need for our Christology. Remember the great question of Christology. This is the great question of Christology. It's the great question of life. Jesus says in Matthew 16, He turns to His disciples and He asks them, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the answer is that He is the Messiah that David was looking forward to. He's He's, he's the, the one who's greater than all the other prophets, all the other priests, and all the other kings because He is the Son of God. And His work in those superior offices, the greater priest, prophet, and king, is sufficient to really save because as king, He conquers the ultimate threat to our security by overcoming sin and death on the cross. Right? That's, that's the function of a king. Protect us from our threats. There's no threat greater than, than death. As a function of, as a, as a penalty of your sin, only Jesus, the king, could conquer it. And he did. 
He dies. He bears it. He raises again and he shouts, it's finished. He is the king of righteousness. His right standing before God enables him to take our sin like nobody else could. The spotless lamb. And to transfer that righteousness to us because he alone has it. He is the righteous king. And he's the king of peace. Bringing peace to us with God. And as prophet, Jesus reveals to us the true words of God. What's true? What do we believe? And Jesus comes and says, I am the Word. I am the revelation of God. If you want to know truth, truth, I am the truth. I am the way. The author of truth comes to us. And everything we know and need to know, everything we need to believe is wrapped up in who He is and what He's done. And as priest, we looked at two weeks ago, He mediates and advocates for us with the Father, making us more than okay. Again, as the resurrected one, He is in, in the presence of the Father. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high and He declares over us, my death counted for them. My righteousness is theirs. Father, they are yours because in me, they're united with us. And He doesn't die. His office as priest doesn't, doesn't diminish or doesn't end. It's not an annual thing. It's every moment of every day. That's his position. He stands there. He is the mediator forever. And as priest, in him we're perfected. Nothing to be afraid of anymore. Which is why the author of Hebrews finishes this thought in verse 25 of chapter 7. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the uttermost everyone who draws near in Him. He is the greater prophet. He is the greater priest. He is the greater King because as Peter so rightly understood and answered, because you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who Jesus is. And Jesus asks us like He asks His disciples. He asks us the same question, who do you say that I am? And the answer of faith and hope and life and security is the answer that says you're the Christ. And in you I put my trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for who You are. We thank You for Your Son. And we thank You for Your Spirit. You are Father, Son, and Spirit. Who's, who, the fullness of who You are and Your ministry, it meets us where we're at. You condescend to us in the Incarnation and You reveal Yourself perfectly to us and You love us 
perfectly. You forgive our sins. You act as our, 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 our priest. You act as our prophet. Every, every word we hear from you is not only truth, but it's, it's life. You have the words of life. And you're the king. You didn't die and stay in the tomb. You rose again. You conquered. And you're coming back. And you're coming back to make it all right. You will be victorious. Every enemy will sit under your feet, conquered. And your people will be established forever. Your kingdom will reign unrivaled forever. God, thank you for who you are. And thank you that we get to know you in Jesus Christ. Thank you that your spirit leads us to see him for who he is and ministers to us regularly. The presence of Jesus is in us now by the indwelling of your spirit. Thank you, God. God, we, we long to know the fullness of that reality. So impress it upon us. When, when my brothers and sisters here leave today and they go off to do life and they go to work tomorrow or school tomorrow and they're, they're reminded again of the brokenness of the world and, the, and, the, and, the, and all the fleeting things, well, would you remind them that they are in Christ? They are in the King who's the prophet and the priest forever and, and they have a ministry of reconciliation to share that good news with the world. Would you remind us of that? Give us hope and victory in life, Lord. Don't let us be discouraged even as we suffer. And we do. But our sufferings are even there to remind us that, that there's a better promise. There's something better, and it's Jesus. So gird us up in that truth. And hallelujah, thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that we have in you. Thank you for this good word. Thank you for Melchizedek who points us to the greater priest and king. Thank you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.